You can go from I should start a podcast to actually starting a podcast with Spreaker. Spreaker's tools allow you to record, manage, distribute, and monetize any podcast idea, whether it's about your business or even your cat. And as your podcast grows, Spreaker helps you manage your success and even monetize it. That means all you need to get started is a microphone and a really good idea. Learn more and get 30% off at Spreaker.com slash get started. That's S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R dot com slash get started. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show. All over the place these days. The phone number, if you want to be a part of it, uh, is 877-97-ERIC. 877-973-7425. Y'all, <laughs> oh, all right. I, I got to play you some audio. I, I didn't even pass this stuff off to Charlie because it didn't exist at the moment. And now it's beginning to recirculate some of the commentary on Kamala Harris. Listen, um, <laughs> we started with Kamala Harris was a progressive. I mean, like two days ago, Kamala Harris was a progressive. She would calm the base. Uh, she would keep everyone on the on the left happy, and then it was wait 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 no no she's a moderate she she she's she's a moderate, and now all of a sudden she's a conservative. Uh, <laughs> listen, I I I I don't care whether you like Donald Trump or not. You you can hate his guts, but at least have some understanding that when conservatives talk about media bias. Uh, we are actually talking about a thing that exists. It, it, it is not hyperbole. Media bias exists. Uh, the, the thigh sweats and priapism in the last 48 hours over Kamala Harris being Joe Biden's vice presidential nominee. You know, the New York Times did a front page massive picture for Kamala Harris's announcement. When Mike Pence was announced as Donald Trump's vice presidential pick, it was a little bitty picture off to the bottom right of the of the page uh, with just a couple of paragraphs. This was a full page expose. They're, they're, oh, but it's history. It's history. Now, every vice presidential pick is history. Uh, you people are blowing it up into something that's not. And you started out 48 hours ago saying she was a progressive who would help solidify the Democratic base. And by today, you're like, no, 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 she's a conservative. She'll get suburban white people to vote for Joe Biden. You you are saying whatever you need to say to help Joe Biden, you people in the press. It really is pathetic. You know, I regularly mock people at Fox News for wanting to hump Donald Trump's leg. I mean, there really are people at, at Fox News who will say or do anything to get the president's attention, and I find that embarrassing. But it is equally embarrassing to watch these people already getting their resumes ready to work in the uh, Biden-Harris administration. Remember, the number of reporters who went to work for Barack Obama was actually pretty staggering. You had people from the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal and the like go into the Obama administration. You had Jake Carney from Time Magazine go into the Obama administration, and he was a straight news reporter. All these people claiming to be straight news, when they, they want to hump Joe Biden's leg like Jerry Falwell at a Trump orgy. It is, it's it's crazy uh, what's going on with members of the media right now. L- listen to this commentary. <laughs> listen to this commentary from MSNBC. Oh, but it gets better than this. Uh, where'd it go? Oh, well, now I built all of that up and then suddenly it disappeared on me. Well, that's embarrassing, isn't it? Hang on a second. Here we go. Here we go. I like to look at it through the lens of 
when my daughter, who's eight years old, when she heard that the vice president had picked Kamala Harris, she her eyes got big, Chris, and said, my goodness, she's South Asian and Jamaican. That means anything is possible for a woman. And this is my daughter, who's eight years old. And <laughs> do, do, do you really believe that, that the eight year old daughter? And if so, if so, what does it say? It's kind of a damning indictment on the parent that the child at eight is that fixated on politics. Uh, you know, I, I do politics for a living with the talk radio show. We don't discuss politics in our house as much as we can. Now, the kids can hear me coming through the wall sometimes when they ask questions. But, I mean, my goodness gracious, uh, some of this stuff uh, from some of these people, it, it's just over the top. But that's not the only thing. Listen to this uh, propaganda, and this is propaganda at CNN. Uh, it, I thought uh, Kamala Harris gave a fantastic speech. She absolutely uh, nailed it. I think this is one of the finest performances uh, I've seen her uh, deliver in terms of a speech. She has tremendous range as a speaker. There are times uh, when she's incredibly warm and funny uh, and light. She's talking about uh, spending time with her nieces and, and, and her stepkids, uh, being called mama, cooking uh, dinner. And then there is uh, a hope that she talks about too growing up as somebody uh, whose parents were involved in the civil rights movement she was a little girl uh, often in her stroller uh, doing during those marches and then connecting that experience uh, with the marchers uh, we almost need like 1970s porn music in the background for some of this commentary from some of these reporters uh, it's it just I mean listen to this Listen to this, the obsession with race on this. This, of course, uh, April Ryan uh, and, and Don Lemon. Number one, she is a black woman. She's a mixed race woman. When you see her, you see her blackness, but she is also South Asian. Her mom is South Asian and her dad is Jamaican. April, she is April, a black April, woman let me, let me, let me listen. Yes. More power to her. And I think what? it's great. That is that should be enough. Listen, it is enough that she's a black woman. We are not a monolith. But no, 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 exactly. no, 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 I think you, I think you're not, you're not hearing what people are saying. The people who are saying she's black enough, that's bull, that's BS. But to, to, to want a distinction to say, is she African American or is she black or is she whatever? What's, there is nothing wrong with that. There is a difference between being African American and being black. Um, la people, la people, Latino people are people of color, but they're not black. They're brown people. She is a okay? woman of color, but she is a black woman. Okay, that's she, why I agree with that. I agree with that. But no, is she African American? No, 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 no. no. But is she African American? There is a difference. There's nothing wrong with that. No one is trying so to take anything away from her. Let's go down, let's go down her. into her lineage. I think you're falling. I think you're falling into a trap of that. All she had to do was say, "I am black, but I'm not African American." That's it. I'm not falling in the trap. I'm not falling in. Who the hell cares? Uh, and excuse my language. I'm sorry. Who cares? Who cares? Think. How are people this race? I, I thought only white nationalists were this race obsessed. I mean that that's what I was told. That only white nationalists are quibbling over, is she African-American or is she? This reminds me of, I, I remember years ago in the Olympics, I think it was the 96 Olympics. I, I think it was uh, that there was a, um, there was a, a South American, South African or Kenyan uh, runner who was white, who won a race. And one commentator I, for NBC 
it had to be the Summer Olympics. That one commentator for, for it was a Bob Costas, I can't remember. Any, anyway, one of them, I was a kid at the time, uh, and, and one of them commented that it was the first non-African-American African. They actually used that phrase, non-African-American African, because they didn't want to bring themselves to say black. So it was the first non-African-American African to, to win this sort of race. It, it was a white person from Africa. They actually, I'm not making this up. I remember it distinctly. And I remember I was watching, I believe with my dad uh, and, and we watched this and then Rush Limbaugh the next day did an entire segment on this idiot uh, commentator, non-African-American African uh, winning a race. Uh, it, I thought only racists were that obsessed with race and terminology and race. This this level of ethnic Gnosticism over, well, you can call yourself black, but you can't really call yourself African-American. By the way, uh, we've got this new phenomenon now on the right. Y'all so help me. I, I'm, I'm, I'm mad at the people at Newsweek for even daring to, to, to process this. I feel like i got to be nice at Newsweek now because a buddy of mine is now the, the head of the, the opinion division there, but it, it infuriates me that they would allow to give voice to someone who's already peddling birtherism that Kamala Harris was born in the United States to immigrant families, but uh, she she may not actually be a natural-born citizen under the 14th Amendment because her parents were immigrants and not yet naturalized into the country. I, I just I, I, we, Those people, we need to round them up on a bus, weld the door shut, and drive them off a cliff into the Pacific. If, if we're going to go down this birtherism roll, road, uh, y'all just, just stop it. Stop it before it starts. Uh, lance the boil before it starts. This is ridiculousness to, to go towards birtherism with Kamala Harris. Uh, it is. I'm, I'm, listen, I don't know why people won't even, it just, it, it infuriates me that people want to go there, but it infuriates me that the media wants to go down this road of 48 hours ago. They were talking about Kamala Harris's purpose was to lock down the Democratic base as a progressive. And now here's George Stephanopoulos. Kamala Harris comes from the middle of the road, moderate wing of the Democratic uh, Party, not the first choice of progressives, but Joe Biden banking that this historic move as the first woman of color on a national ticket will overcome that. It seems like the Trump campaign. And this Kamala is Harris the was Associated the favorite uh, to be Joe Biden's VP pick, frankly, from the beginning of the process. Uh, they seem a little flat-footed here in terms of their response. Do they have time to turn it around, sharpen their message? Sure, of course they do. But they haven't yet. They're still trying to yeah. pigeonhole her, uh, on one hand, as this real leftist. On the other hand, this sort of, you know, this cop uh, who was too tough on Joe Biden. They're seemingly trying to have it both ways. And, and Harris's record simply doesn't lend itself much like Joe Biden's record doesn't lend itself to suggesting that she is a member of the extreme par part of the Democratic Party, which is what they want to say. Uh, so the messaging yeah. has been haphazard and scattershot. And as a final point, as much as the president has said in the last two days that Harris was his, quote, number one draft pick, that's who he wanted <clears throat> Biden to pick. All reporting that as recently as Sunday night when he was flying back to Washington from New Jersey on Air Force One, he was telling confidants on the plane he really wanted Susan Rice and Karen Bass. That's who he wanted. He yeah. didn't want Kamala Harris. So, yes, the Trump administration has been muddied there as well on, on how is she. But the Democrats, too. First, she was progressive. Then she was moderate. Now she's a small C conservative. And, and by the way, to the, the guy, Dylan Byers, I, I believe it was, who, who said that, that she was a conservative pick for Joe Biden. He that's been so badly distorted by some people. He wasn't meaning conservative as an ideology. He was meaning safe bet. 
He was meaning a safe pick for Joe Biden. And that, to a degree, is true. She was a safer pick uh, than a lot of other people. And that's what he meant. But this idea that she's somehow suddenly a moderate or, or somehow conservative, listen, she is not part of the radical left. That is absolutely true. She's not part of the radical left. And uh, those people on the right who are saying she is part of the radical left uh, have lost the ability to distinguish. She's not Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez level or Bernie Sanders level. Uh, what she is, however, is ideologically very much of the left, abortion on demand, uh, roundup guns, all of the all of the box checks that you need on the left, she has those. But she also has a record as attorney general when she was the attorney general in California. And frankly, it's a pretty damning record. And given that the president of the United States signed criminal justice reform, and he's been running away from having signed criminal justice reform, this is the perfect opportunity for the president of the United States to dust off uh, the uh, the criminal justice reform package out there and highlight exactly uh, what Kamala Harris did when she was attorney general in California. It is not anything that anyone uh, who knows about it would like. And most Americans believe that Kamala Harris as the pick for Joe Biden is someone who will stand eventually for president of the United States. So you might as well make this about Kamala Harris. And everyone who says that this is all going to be a referendum on Donald Trump, you're absolutely right. But there are a whole lot of people out there who don't like Donald Trump who can at least be persuaded not to go vote for Joe Biden. And they can do it, the Trump team can do it by making it about Kamala Harris. Since so many of these people are wise enough to realize Joe Biden's not going to be around forever. This is the time to start tearing down Kamala Harris based on her own record. And there's a lot to use against her. A lot to use against her. And that takes us back to the Tulsi Gabbard exchange, which we need to get to when we come back. Hello there. Okay, I I, I wasn't going to say, I got to say this. I just find it creepy. Um, so, you know, Herman Cain died of uh, COVID-19 and someone is still tweeting from his Twitter account. That's just, y'all, if I die and someone tweets from my Twitter account after I'm dead, Find that person, smash their computers and phones, and ground them. Uh, that that's just that's disturbing to me. To 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 keep it, when, when your account is tied to an individual, and that individual we all know is is no more. Uh, God rest his soul. Don't please please stop. Please please stop. Um, uh, I I just that that you know I people try to do that with with Breitbart after he died, and it was just I I find it disturbing. I want to read for you uh, something from the New York Times that I think the president's campaign can and should use. If you recall, during the 2016 presidential debate, uh, Tulsi Gabbard had a pretty heated exchange with, uh, with Kamala Harris, really threw Kamala Harris off her game, talking about her um, record as attorney general in California. And it was all about how she kept people in prison. There's an article from the New York Times. It's an opinion piece from the New York Times. uh, And it says this, 
Ms. Harris fought tooth and nail to uphold wrongful convictions that had been secured through official misconduct that included evidence tampering, false testimony, and the suppression of crucial information by prosecutors. Consider her record as San Francisco's district attorney from 2004 to 2011. Ms. Harris was criticized in 2010 for withholding information about a police laboratory technician who had been accused of intentionally sabotaging her work and stealing drugs from the lab. After a memo surfaced showing that Ms. Harris's deputies knew about the technician's wrongdoing and recent conviction but failed to alert defense lawyers, a judge condemned Ms. Harris's indifference to the systemic violation of the defendant's constitutional rights. More than 600 people were let out of jail because of what happened, because of what she did, because of what her office did. Now, that was an opinion piece in the New York Times. There was also an article in the New York Times, and let me read you this quote from that article. Assistant prosecutors were quoted saying that Ms. Harris had pressured them to take away weak case to, to, I'm sorry, had pressured them to take weak cases to trial in an attempt to look tough as she prepared to run beyond the liberal city. There's an attack there for the president, and this gets to the Tulsi Gabbard exchange in that CNN debate. Harris confronting Vice President Biden at the last debate. You called it a quote, false accusation that Joe Biden is a racist. What's your response? I want to bring the conversation back to the broken criminal justice system that is disproportionately negatively impacting black and brown people all across this country today. Now, Senator Harris says she's proud of her record as a prosecutor and that she'll be a prosecutor president, but I'm deeply concerned about this record. There are too many examples to cite, but she put over 1,500 people in jail for marijuana violations and then laughed about it when she was asked if she ever smoked marijuana. She blocked evidence. She blocked evidence that would have freed an innocent man from death row until the courts forced her to do so. She kept people in prison beyond their sentences to use them as cheap labor for the state of California. And she fought to keep cash you, bail system in place that impacts poor people in the worst kind of way. Thank you, Congresswoman. Uh, Senator Harris, your response? Yeah, the, the Harris response. Listen to this. As the elected attorney general of California, I did the work of significantly reforming the criminal justice system of a state of 40 million people, which became a national model for the work that needs to be done. And I am proud of that work. And I am proud of making a decision to not just give fancy speeches or be in a legislative body and give speeches on the floor, but actually doing the work of being in the position to use the power that I had to reform a system that is badly in need of reform. That is why we created initiatives that were about reentering former offenders and getting them counseling. It is why, and because I know that criminal justice Thank system you, is Senator. so broken, that I am an advocate for what Thank we you, need Senator. to do to your, not your only decriminalize, but legalize marijuana in the United States. I want to I bring uh, Congresswoman uh, Gabbard back in. Your response? The bottom line is, Senator Harris, when you were in a position to make a difference and an impact in these people's lives, you did not. And worse yet, in the case of those who were on death row, innocent people, you actually blocked evidence from being revealed that would have freed them until you were forced to do so. There is no excuse for that. And the people who suffered under your reign as prosecutor, oh, you owe them an apology. And you know, she was right. Uh, you may not like it. Uh, Kamala Harris didn't like it, but it was right. Uh, again, 
while she was the uh, district attorney in San Francisco, she withheld information about a lab technician who sabotaged her work, re- failed to inform defense lawyers, and a bunch of people ultimately were, had to get out of jail. She kept people in prison longer so that they could serve as labor for the state. And assistant prosecutors were quoted as saying she pressured them to take weak cases to trial just to so show she was tough on crime. There's an attack there for the president's team if they're willing to make the attack. The question is, are they willing to make that attack? We'll find out here very soon whether or not they want to. Welcome back. It is Eric Erickson here. Uh, the phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I, I, I had a funny moment. So, you know, I, I do my daily email on the, the Substack website, and I actually had a couple of people who subscribe who are not fans of the president. They're really mad at me for giving the president advice. Uh, they, they don't like it. They wish I would shut up. Um, they're, they're upset that the president may go to Gettysburg and they're blaming me for it. And, and they, they don't want the president reelected. And, and they really, they're really steamed at, at the advice that I gave in my morning email, I actually sent it out last night. Uh, and uh, I'm going to give that advice to you. Uh, my buddy, Brent, who listens to the show uh, online uh, was also saying, you know, with, with riots, I don't know that attacking Kamala Harris for being law and order is going to work. Uh, I, I, here's why I disagree and why I think it's perfect. What do the people claim that they're protesting? They claim they're protesting injustice. They claim, and, and we know this isn't real because the very same people who want you to ignore Kamala Harris's record as attorney general less than a decade ago want to tear down statues of Columbus and Thomas Jefferson. But th- that gets to the larger point here. They claim this is all about injustice. So instead of making it about law and order, make it about justice and injustice. Co-opt the rioters' claims. So the president signed criminal justice reform to get out of jail people who had unjustly, in, in an abusive, over a repressive system, rounded up young men for selling marijuana and smoking it and thrown them in jail for life. And he signed legislation to get them out of it. What did Kamala Harris do? She kept them in jail to serve as slave labor for the state of California. President Trump wants to send bad people to jail. Kamala Harris wants to keep the wrongly accused in jail. President Trump wants to keep you safe Kamala Harris wants to pervert the justice system and keep people in jail who shouldn't be there. President Trump believes in fairness in the system. Kamala Harris is willing to ignore the fairness of the system to get ahead politically. President Trump has helped black men get out of jail who were put there for drug crimes. Kamala Harris laughed about sending them to jail for drug crimes. President Trump wants the system to work for everyone. Kamala Harris wants the system to work for her. I mean, I think you take this, and so then you pivot from there. Now Kamala Harris wants you to give money to help rioters get out of jail. That's the problem with Kamala Harris. She let innocent people stay in jail and fought to keep them there while wanting rioters to get out of jail and wanting you to pay money to help them get out of jail. 
I, I, I think it's a it's a justice and justice approach. It's a fairness approach. Listen, I, I saw something the other day, Jay Nordlinger, and it is a very good point. Democrats have a have a far easier time and are better in this country at articulating uh, things as fairness. And given the choice between being fair and giving free, being free, far more people in this country are interested in fairness than freedom. You yourself may say, no, no, I, I won't give me liberty or give me death. That's fine, but all the neighbors around you are saying, yeah, I don't care if we got a dictator as long as he's fair to everybody. The president has an opportunity here to make this about basic fairness. Kamala Harris, this is not in dispute, by the way. This is not in dispute. This is reported in the New York Times. Kamala Harris fought to keep people in jail to serve as cheap labor for the state of California. Tulsi Gabbard was not making that up. That was in the New York Times. Kamala Harris... When she discovered evidence that people had been uh, wrongly put in jail, she buried the evidence and didn't tell defense attorneys. Kamala Harris encouraged district attorneys and, and city attorneys in California to prosecute crimes just to make her look good, even when those assistant district attorneys and, and city attorneys didn't think there was a case there. I mean, this is I think this is an issue that the president can use. The president can say, look, I sign criminal justice reform. No one disputes I'm law and order. No one disputes I'm tough on crime. But I believe that when we're tough on crime, we've also got to be fair. Kamala Harris fails the test for basic fairness. Kamala Harris fails the test. She she kept evidence away from defense attorneys that would, was exculpatory. She kept people in jail to serve as cheap labor for the state of California. Kamala Harris uh, treated uh, people in jail as indentured servants for the state of California, contrary to the Constitution. I think there's a message there for him to pivot this and and to run aggressively on the fact that, uh, look, Kamala Harris's record says that she is law and order. But people are rioting in the streets right now over justice and injustice. Kamala Harris and I are both law and order based on our records, but based on our records, one of us is for justice and one of us is for injustice. And it's not me, it's her. She kept people in jail. She hid evidence that could have gotten people out of jail. She encouraged prosecutors to take weak cases to make herself look good. And worse, she kept people in jail longer than their sentences required to serve as cheap labor for the state of California. Make her own that record. She can't deny, it's already been, the New York Times wrote about this. Make her own the record. I, I, it, it, there's a way to do this. Now, here's the problem, and let's all acknowledge the problem. The president is bad with messaging. The president thinks he's good with messaging, but the president is good with messaging when he has a 5,000-person crowd there to cheer or not cheer certain lines. The president himself is not good at this without that sort of focus grouping in large crowds, and there are no focus group crowds for him to use right now because he can't have these big rallies. The president is terrible with messaging. Someone needs to get the man in a room and point all this out to him. There are ways for him. Look, so if press reports are to be believed, the president of the United States, the president of the United States is upset with, I'm I'm trying to nuance my words here. He doesn't want to. He doesn't want to run from his criminal justice reform package. He just doesn't think that it's a selling point right now. I think there's a way for him to embrace his record on criminal justice reform, 
I think there's a way for him to embrace the idea that he improved the lives of young black men and Kamala Harris wanted them to be indentured servants for the state of California. See, if press reports are to be believed, he's, he thinks that Jared Kushner, who pushed criminal justice reform on him, made a strategic mistake. And there are a lot of people in the conservative movement right now who are screaming angrily that he ever signed criminal justice reform. I think Kamala Harris gives the president the perfect opportunity to own criminal justice reform and also own the justice issue. Kamala Harris kept black men in prison, and now she wants you to let out of prison or let out of jail the rioters burning down America, and that's her problem. Kamala Harris highlights injustice and thinks it's good. Donald Trump highlights justice and thinks justice is good. Donald Trump believes in a fair system. Kamala Harris presided over an unfair system. The rioters who are burning America down right now for injustice, they're burning down America not because of people like Donald Trump, because of people like Kamala Harris, and yet she's on the side of the rioters. The whole situation is screwed up. There's a way for him to message this. But he's he, yes, he's got to be careful how he does it. Yes, it is very nuanced. No, I, I'm not sure that uh, he's capable of making the message. But y'all, I'm telling you, it is a message he should make. I, I, I can't emphasize enough Kamala Harris obstructed exculpatory evidence going to, to defense attorneys so that she could keep people in jail who were wrongfully in jail. And Kamala Harris kept young men in prison to serve as slave labor for the state of California or cheap labor, indentured servitude to the state of California. And on top of all of that, she was rounding up young men for pot possession and throwing them in jail and then laughing about it. There's a way forward to navigate this. There's a way forward to do this. And the president's team needs to get on this because right now they're throwing everything. That, and this is part of the problem with the president's campaign right now is they're throwing everything at the wall, seeing what sticks. They they don't seem to have the discipline here. You know, so Philip and I have been toying with this idea that I should do a series of videos. You know, everybody's doing these masterclass things. Uh, I should do a series of videos on how to run for office because uh, I've done this before. I've run people for office. I've run people quite successfully for office in the past. Uh, federal races, state races, uh, local races. And one of the things that you are supposed to do is is you're supposed to do essentially a SWOT analysis, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. Uh, you're supposed to assess your message against the other side's message and assess your candidate against the other side's candidate. And it doesn't seem like people are doing that in the Trump campaign right now. It seems like they're throwing everything they can at the wall and to try to see what sticks. It, 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 like they never bother to do it up front. They don't have a sense of it. I mean, it, it, Joe Biden, I mean, there, there's a level of political malpractice in this in that Joe Biden at only one moment fell below the other candidates in the Democratic primary in, in the polling average, and that was by a tenth of a point to Elizabeth Warren, and then he bounced back. For only one day in the last year and a half did Joe Biden ever sink below any of the other candidates in the Democratic primary. They should have known it was going to be him or that he had a high likelihood of being there, and it seems like they did, given all the stuff on, on Hunter Biden and the like.
but I, I just, I, I, I gotta, I, I, I gotta figure something out. I, I, I just, I, I don't know. I don't know what went on. It just, it's, it, it, it's, it's bizarre. Um, and now they got to come up with a message on Kamala Harris and they seem to be struggling that they, they again seem to be throwing everything at the wall. Y'all it, it's not hard. It's not hard. Kamala Harris is a woman who couldn't even make it to Iowa in the Democratic primary because when the voters get to know her, they don't like her. So let them know her very well, very quickly. Let them know her record as attorney general in California, and they will like her less uh, the closer you get. And by the way, I don't think that there's clearly in the media right now, there is very clearly the playbook is out there of every attack on Kamala Harris is sexist or racist. The president called her nasty. (gasps) Oh, it's such a misogynist attack. The president has called me nasty. The president has called all sorts of men nasty, but suddenly it's a, oh, it's sexism. It's misogyny. Now, you, you got to highlight this stuff, too. you got to highlight the hypocrisy of the press. You know, if I ever ran for president of the United States, in all honesty, I would weaponize the media attacks against them so that when the media says something stupid, you highlight this over and over and over. I mean, highlight the, 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 the media trying to hump the Biden-Harris leg. I mean, it, it is, it is a, it, it's almost pornographic, the media coverage in the last 48 hours of Biden and Harris. It, it, it really is. Uh, the, these people are going blind in the bathroom together over the Biden-Harris uh, campaign. It, it's just, it, it's, it's kind of bizarre to watch. And it, it makes you remember the, the the orgasmic coverage of Hillary Clinton in 2016. And by the way, that's why the media is still to this day so bitter about 2016 and have convinced themselves and internalized that the Russians sold it because they really wanted Hillary Clinton. They were emotionally invested in that. You know, I'm not a huge fan of the president. Anybody who listens to this program knows I'm not a huge fan of the president. But I wake up on days like this and I actively want Biden and Harris to lose because I want to see the heartbreak. I I want to see the tears of people in the press when they lose. I I want to see that woman in the fetal position on the ground saying, no, when Donald Trump is sworn in for second term. I I actually want that. It's it's not so much. I I wake up days and I'm like, really? This guy is president. He's just, why? Why? And then I see the left in this country like, that's why, that's why the, the brokenness of these people, they've made it all about politics. I, I played that. I don't want to play the clip again. I don't want to hear it. It creeps me out. The My eight-year-old said, if if a, the first Asian Jamaican woman can be vice president, anything is possible for women, mommy. One, I don't believe that happened. And two, if it did, that's absurd. And there are some people who need their dreams crushed right now. And many of those people are in the media trying to ride the leg of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. And frankly, if that's what gets me up and gets me to the polls in November to vote for the president, I, I'm, I'm kind of willing to do that. I'm, I'm kind of, this is just, the, the whole thing is just bizarre. It, it really, genuinely, it's bizarre stuff. And it, we, we, we've seen the media being so antagonistic to the president for the last four years and now it's, it's it's seeing them be so antagonistic to him and now being so just uh, infatuated with with uh, it's like the the teenage girls at a Taylor Swift concert except it's Joe Biden on stage and Kamala Harris 
pay no attention to the fact she keep kept young black men in jail to serve as slave labor for the state of California. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number, if you would like to be a part of this here program, is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Uh, you know, I really do have other stuff. Oh, I know one more Harris thing before, before we move on to other stuff. So, you know, yesterday in that speech, she, she compared uh, Donald Trump's handling of, of, um, of COVID-19 to Barack Obama's handling of Ebola. I know that you're stunned. I I realize you're stunned to know there was an Ebola outbreak in the United States of America. I kid you not. I pointed this out yesterday. And and do you realize that there were reporters from MSNBC who replied to me, well, isn't that the point? There wasn't. Ebola is not a pandemic. She called it a pandemic. It it was confined to Western Africa. It was a bad outbreak, but it was not like COVID-19. To to think that the, the two are the same is insane, and yet there are reporters out there defending this. Uh, it, it is, it's, it's, I mean, it, it's absurd that they, they want to go there. So she, two people, two Americans died of actually, you know, they didn't die. These two Americans, or if you will recall, uh, during the Obama administration, the Obama team flew two American doctors who had gotten Ebola to the CDC in Atlanta. Uh, they were, uh, sequestered in some way. And uh, they were they were taken care of, and they ultimately recovered. They used experimental uh, medicine, and they helped them. In fact, uh, remdesivir, I believe it was remdesivir, one of the drugs. Anyway, um, they used drugs that helped fight Ebola. And these two doctors, they they've got issues to this day, but they recovered. They didn't actually die. And Kamala Harris said only two Americans died. They didn't die. To the extent any Americans died, it was people. It was um, it was missionaries who went to Africa medical missionaries and and they got it there and they died there they didn't come home uh, to try to compare the two of them is is genuinely nuts and yet she did and not only did she do it the media went out there and and grabbed hold of it and defended it we are going to have to put up with this for a while it is it, it is clear media bias now the other issue of media bias that is out there right now y'all People live in a bubble. I don't know if you know this or not, but a a great many people out there buy shower heads and have learned to use a drill. You can go online. There are YouTube videos. They've learned to use a drill to get the water regulator out of shower heads. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, uh, the federal government now limits the flow of showers to 2.5 gallons per minute maximum flow rate. Now, the way that uh, the Obama administration interpreted the regulation was that the 2.5 gallons per minute flow rate is required if you've got, so I stayed up at Lake Burton uh, a month or so ago uh, actually, I guess it's been been about two months now. Went up to Lake Burton and stayed at a place, and the shower in the master bedroom at this place was like driving through a car wash. It had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. It had eight shower heads in it. 
there were two on each side of the wall that you could aim at the 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 center and, and lower part portions of your body. There were two that came down at angles from the from the top. There was one giant waterfall shower overhead, and then there was a handheld one. And you could turn them all on at the same time, and it was glorious. In addition to that, the shower had a, was, was also a steam room. You could push a button, and steam would start pouring out, and you could just sit there and sweat. It was glorious. I want one of those so bad. Well, what you typically have to do with these, the dirty little secret is you have to drill out the water regulator because it stifles the flow of water. It's much like your dishwasher. Anyone who's gotten a dishwasher past about 2010, your dishwasher is crap and you know it. Uh, You've got to wash your dishes by hand essentially before you put them in the dishwasher and the dishwasher doesn't really do anything. And it's because of federal regulations on dishwashers, particularly federal regulation against phosphates and other things. And the president has been going on the warpath about these. And well, the privileged members of the media elite who never wash their dishes and have someone to bathe them are like, I can't believe he's turning these things into issues. I just, I don't understand why he would do this sort of stuff. Well, he's doing it because of modern American showers and, and, and dishwashers suck. They, they, they genuinely suck. And, and the, the low flow of all the stuff is terrible. And the president's making this an issue and the media is ridiculing him for doing it, which shows you how little the media knows about this stuff. The amount of Americans who go through and, and, and uh, drill out their water regulators just so they can get de- decent water pressure is actually a thing. And that the people in the media don't know it just shows you largely how tone deaf the people in the media are about real world issues these days that Americans actually care about. And by the way, kudos to the president for actually caring about those real world issues as he gets out on the campaign trail. Something for us to discuss at a later date. Hello, hello, it's Eric Erickson here. The Eric Erickson Show. Across the state of Georgia, the phone number. If you would like to be a part of this here program, 877-97-ERIC. 877-973-7425. Let me begin with something non-political. We we got enough politics to talk about. But remember, during the debate over gay marriage... You had a lot of conservatives out there saying, oh, well, there, there, there were two two attacks in the argument, two prongs. One was um, that if, you, if we had gay marriage in this country, Christians would be harassed, persecuted, and their, and their businesses shut down if they refused to participate. And, no, that won't happen. Live and let live. And the other was you, you do this, you, you're not going to be able to stop there. You're not going to be able to stop there. And and no, this slippery slope argument, no, that's not going to happen. It's just gay marriage. Well, uh, we we now see Christian businesses in this country regularly harassed uh, for not wanting to be down with gay marriage. And now this, for the second time in one week, the New York Times is pushing uh, polyamorous parenting. That is multi-parent parenting. Policymakers in the United States are just beginning to expand their definition of what makes a family as the city of Somerville, Massachusetts passed an ordinance in June giving polyamorous groups rights that are typically only given to two-parent couples, like the ability to share health insurance. Somerville City Council president said he felt the ordinance was urgent because of the pandemic as it would allow more residents health care coverage. But this ordinance is an outlier, though non-monogamy seems to be on the rise, or at least society is more open about it than ever before. Families consisting of three or more parents can face challenges that in some ways are different from and similar to those faced by divorced parents, single parents and LGBTQ parents. 
That's right. Um, we've got now uh, how technology is going to allow for co-parenting and uh, uh, polyamorous parenting and the like. And man, um, here's 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 the deal, folks. They all said this wasn't going to happen. It was just hyperbole. And you notice how everything the right says is hyperbole on this stuff uh, suddenly becomes reality once the left gets its way. It's, well, because the right has a good sense of how people operate and, and the left has to lie about it to get their way. Or they have to have Anthony Kennedy. I mean, again, this is this is two articles in one week in the New York Times promoting uh, polygamy. I, I, okay. All right. Uh, just, I, I wanted to point that out. Now I, I, I want to move on away from that. I, I, I spent so much time on Kamala Harris in the first hour. I, I don't want to, I don't want to revisit the Kamala Harris issue. I, I want to talk about, um, schooling, which is a subject I'm tired of, but I also think that there needs to be um, more talk about it because as kids are going back to school, we're starting to see them getting the virus in school. And it's making a lot of people increasingly nervous. I know of more families having fights right now over this issue, disagreements between parents on whether or not to send their kids back to school, disagreements between parents and kids on whether or not the kids should go back to school. The Cherokee County situation is not a good situation. You've got now two high schools in Cherokee County, uh, Etowah High School and, and one other, that are closed till the end of the month because the virus spread so quickly through the school population they had to be closed down. Uh, the Paulding County High School situation, uh, multiple kids there have um, have gotten it. And now it's happening in other places that are sending kids back to school. And at the same time, there are places like Fairfax County Public Schools in Virginia where the school system is condemning parents for pooling resources to hire tutors for their kids, urging parents not to do this because they're concerned that it will give rich kids an unfair advantage over poor kids and will increase educational inequity. Not, not inequality, but inequity. At some point, it, let, me, let me say a couple of things here. At some point, you are all, you, you and your family are only as safe as the least responsible member of your kid's school. And that's a sad reality because it doesn't matter whether you go to a private school or a public school. There are a lot of dumb people in the world who are deeply irresponsible. And there are so many people who are so convinced that this is no big deal that they don't care if their kids get it and they don't care if they get it because they think it's just going to be a, a bad cold. And irrespective of that, they, they are completely oblivious to the fact that there are kids in their, um, the, the, there are kids in their schools 
who have high-risk family members, and they, they simply don't care. There is a, a, a level of selfishness in our society these days that's frankly unbecoming of American society uh, that you don't care that you could be putting someone in your kid's school at high risk. Your kids and you are only as safe as the least responsible person in your kid's school. But there's something else here as well that you need to be mindful of. You need to do what is in your child's best interest. You need to do what is in your child's best interest and don't let a school board make you feel guilty about what you're doing. Don't let a school system make you feel guilty about what you're doing. Just because a school system thinks in some way that there is inequity, it's not just inequality, it's inequity. Now, what's the difference between inequality and inequity? Equity has to deal with your stake in something. Do you have equity in the company? Not, not, it's not about you, you and the other kids being equal or not. It's about whether or not they've got, got a, a stakeholder relationship, an ownership interest in something, uh, and, and they clearly don't, um, or at least the, the school system doesn't think they do. That's why uh, you, you notice more and more these uh, Black Lives Matters activists, when they're out there, and they're no longer talking about equality. They're talking about equity because they want to stake in something. They feel like you must have your wealth to, given to them so that they have a higher stake in society, uh, that you using your wealth to benefit your kids uh, is bad because you're not benefiting the poor kids in the school, that you're supposed to keep your children at a disadvantage so that other kids don't fall further behind or, or can't get ahead. You need to do what is in your child's best interest, and that is keep them at home and homeschool them or let them learn remotely or uh, hire a tutor. Then you need to do that. I frankly, I, I'm I I love what our school system has done. Our 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 kids go to private school, and I, I love what they've done. Uh, my my only gripe is that you have an either or option for the first semester of of learn from home or go to school, and I wish they would do it month to month. Because I would prefer, frankly, at this point, given what's happening in other schools. And, and given that I know we, there are some families in our kids' school who just don't take it seriously, uh, I would rather take a wait-and-see approach for a month before I send my kids to school. I, I don't, I don't want to keep them out the whole semester, but I want to take a wait-and-see approach. And, and I wish that our school would have a month-to-month approach as opposed to a, a full quarter. Uh, you got to opt out for the full quarter. Um, I, 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 there are a number of schools that are doing this, and they're doing it month-to-month, and I, I wish we could. Um, but otherwise, I, I think they've got great plans in place for what they're doing. But the kids in the school are only as safe as, as the least responsible families. And it doesn't matter which school you're in, that's the case. And I just, you, at some point, you got to stand up for your family, y'all. And the media is going overboard, and, and some of these public policy worry warts on, on television are going overboard trying to bully you and your family. Uh, into doing something they want you to do, not what you think they need to do. It is in my children's best interest to go back to school. I wish they could do it remotely for a month and see how it goes with the kids who decided to go to school. I I, I wish that was the case. Uh, We don't really have that option. It's got to be an all or nothing quarter or not. And so we will send our kids to school. 
because I, I think uh, talking to our pediatrician and, and our doctor um, that it's it's in our kids' best interest to go to school. I think it is in everyone's kids' best interest to start getting educated again. And the fact that you've got public school advocates out there who don't want, not only don't want your kids to go to school right now, but don't want your kids to even be tutored says way more about how bad our school systems have become than it says anything about you and your family. You got to do what you got to do to keep your family safe, but you got to do what you got to do to keep your kids educated as well. And frankly, we are going to see a great sorting and reckoning over the situation. We are going to see certain families get a competitive advantage. And I got to tell you, part of me really does believe some of the belly aching about Southern schools has everything to do with that. That the, these uh, Yankee schools are going to fall further behind, and they don't want these Southern schools. They don't want them to have football because of the revenue that it'll generate. They don't want them to go to school. They won't, don't want any of this stuff. It, it, it's, it's amazing to me how we've been told for a while now that we've got to champion uh, the right of people to decide for themselves to stay home, and and we got to praise the football players who are willing to take a knee, and we got to praise the basketball players for for their willingness, their responsibility, their maturity in protesting injustice in America. But by God, the football players come out and say, look, we can be safe and play football. No, 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 no. You're not mature enough to make that decision. If you want to take a knee, we're going to praise you. But if you want to play ball, no, you're not allowed to do that. At some point, you got to work this stuff across the board. You got to be consistent across the board and and they don't want to be consistent across the board with this. I'm y'all don't feel guilty about wanting your kids to go back to school. Don't feel guilty about feeling like you need to keep your kid at home. We are in strange times of muddied guidance and rudderless leadership across the board on this stuff. And a lot of the belly aching you hear in the media on the virus really is politically motivated. A lot of it is true, and a lot of the people trying to dismiss it are politically motivated. It is hard to figure out what's true and what's not right now. I'll tell you what's true. Kids are getting the virus when they go to school. I'll tell you what's also true. We do not yet have a lot of evidence that when they get the virus, they're transmitted it to their parents. That evidence will probably come. I suspect it will come, but we don't have it right now. And there are studies in Europe that that are, are very similar in this regard. That kids are getting the virus from adults, but then not transmitting it back. Now, the older your kid is, the more likely they are to transmit it back. But at some point, you just got to take responsibility into your own hands. And I, I hope that's a silver lining in everything we're dealing with as a country right now, that people will realize the government really isn't going to save you. And you've got to save yourself. Part of me thinks that maybe that's that's why the rise of gun ownership in this country, it, we're seeing this rise, particularly among black Americans right now who are going out overwhelmingly and buying guns right now. Guns and ammo are so hard to find right now. And it's because people are going out and saying, you know what? I've got to be in charge of my own destiny. I've got to keep my family safe. The government's not going to keep me safe. i got to do it myself. And you're right. And that should have been the default the entire time. You should never invest your livelihood in whether or not government functions for you. You need to be in charge of your family. The family unit matters. And frankly, I I wish a lot of people would look at this and say, you know what? I need to not be single. I, I should get married and have kids and build a safety net for my family with inside a nuclear family unit uh, because that's going to make me better off long, long term than dependence on government or friends when the friends can't even come see me right now. I don't think we'll get there. 
But if we at least get to the point of, you know what, we got to take care of ourselves and not wait for the government to tell us what to do, I think that's actually a good thing. And I think we frankly still need more of that in society. So uh, welcome back, by the way. It's Eric Erickson here. And the phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I have been asked by multiple people uh, in light of my tirade yesterday against QAnon, uh, how do I explain this global pedophilia ring with with Jeffrey Epstein? Uh, if there's not really some global organized uh, something or other uh, with, with, with rich elite and, and pedophiles. I actually have an explanation. Believe it or not, I do. Uh, but first, uh, to review real quick, um, I I do not buy into QAnon, and I wish you people wouldn't either. And I want you to understand, I was actually talking with the pastor last night, and I think this is something, there's got to be a pastoral approach to this. And increasingly, it is in churches where you find adherence to QAnon because the QAnon uh, people have started using more religious rhetoric, particularly wrapping it around uh, Jesus and America. It's a form of Gnosticism. Now, Gnosticism had had a very particular meaning in the early church, but it has largely come to mean uh, those cults in particular or other things that claim to have secret knowledge that explains the world. Uh, now, there is a – what is Vaudi Beecham? Um, he's a, a black pastor within the PCA. Uh, has actually given a, a great sermon on ethnic Gnosticism. I had to go look at um, that. Uh, you, you, some of you may believe that uh, race explains the way certain people behave and act, uh, and that that race and ethnicity can describe. Um, oh, if if you're if you're Asian, you're smarter. You've got a more stable family. If you're white, you're wealthier, and and it, it's ethnic Gnosticism. You're essentially taking things with a veneer of truth for reasons other than what you claim and then building a worldview around it that's not really true and then you sell it to other people with a um with the idea that they can understand the way the world works if they buy into this and you see this with QAnon QAnon is a form of gnosticism it is very much like scientology QAnon purports to explain to you the way the world works to unlock the mysteries of the universe, so to speak, to explain to you that Donald Trump was elected, divinely appointed or or some such elected, because there is a deep state cabal and a, that he is going to expose and he's going to round up a global pedophile network and God has put him here for this purpose. Now, those were the original founding tenets of QAnon, but it's morphed over time because none of their predictions come true and so they got to twist them a little bit and and i know people who have gone down the QAnon rabbit hole and they are mad at me for calling it out but it is gnosticism it purports to give you insight that others don't have and in the process by the way one of the things you see with people who have who've bought into QAnon is they actually become very arrogant they become prideful that that unlike you hicks and rubes who haven't taken the red pill uh you 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 don't really understand the way the world works and they do they're they're realists they it, it becomes very prideful and you actually see this it, it is a common trait in gnosticism 
that when you open the door and you get the special knowledge, you become prideful that you have it and others don't. And, and you may want to share it with other people, but you lord it over everyone else that you understand the way the world works in a way that others don't. And it's Gnostic. Well, one of the things that has gotten thrown out to me is, well, what about all the Jeffrey Epstein and the rich people and, and Prince Andrew and Bill Clinton and all? Y'all, I want to explain this to you very basically, and, and maybe you won't be able to understand this or not. When you were a kid, you probably knew the 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 older kids who could go buy beer for you. When you wanted to engage in underage drinking, you knew who it was. When you're in college or when you're a young professional, you know the people. If you're into this sort of thing, you develop the relationships and know the people who can buy you drugs. Whether you're a cocaine addict or or you smoke pot on the weekends, you probably know the people that you can go to 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 access illegal narcotics. If you're into child porn, you know the rabbit holes down which to go where to find it. And if you're into pedophilia, you know that as well. And your rich people who are super influential and you're connected into a circle of people and you too are into drugs, well, you know all the people to go buy drugs in the same way you're into young girls, you know the people to go to. And Jeffrey Epstein was one of them. It's not some elaborate global pedophilia ring. It's the people who are into deviancy being able to spot the other deviants. That, that's all it is. It, just like you, you as a kid want to engage in underage drinking. You, you know the, the older, you know the, the 18 or the 21-year-old you can go to and, and get them to buy you alcohol. If you're the, the rich prince of England and, and you're into young girls, well, you find the guy who can do it because you're into that sort of thing. You can spot each other. I've, I've never understood it, uh, how people have that radar, but they do. And that's just the reality of it. It's it's not some globally organized pedophilia ring that's out there. Uh, and that's part of the QAnon stuff. Now, you're taking uh, foundational truths and amplifying them to build whole houses of lies and global Gnostic knowledge on how the world works. And ultimately, at the end of the day, it really is elaborate BS that many of you have fallen for, and you need to not. Um, I... I, I, I yeah, I'm. I'm going to say this, and it may it shouldn't get me in trouble because I'll be careful in how I say it. I, I would I would like to give a big middle finger shout out to all of the reporters and pundits screaming sexism about Kamala Harris who participated in uh, character assassination attacks against Sarah Palin because I am seeing it happen. I mean, there Margaret Sullivan who is now writing at the Washington Post among others, screaming, oh, the, the president, he's calling uh, Kamala Harris a nasty woman. The, the stuff uh, she said about Sarah Palin and, and other people out there, the, the things they said about Sarah Palin when she was running in 2008, really, it, it, it is hilarious and hypocritical to see reporters who were mocking Palin then or, or even, you know, going after Ann Romney in 2012. The people who went after Ann Romney suddenly screaming sexism about Kamala Harris. Now, this is one thing you can expect. I mean, you, you know it's going to happen. It, it reliably happens all the time uh, when they do this. By the way, uh, random subject, just to realize that I didn't mention this earlier. Have you heard about uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez? Ho, 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 ho. The so-called justice Democrats are livid. She gets now, after she was left off, well, now they've announced Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is going to give a speech to the Democratic National Convention. Talk about a middle finger. Uh, salute to AOC. They've given her 60 seconds. 
<laughs> she can't get through her ums and likes in 60 seconds. Um, like, um, I, um, like, w- would like to thank the, eh, time's up. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes, I, I can feel Charlie yelling down the line that, that we should play one of these. It's, it's been a while. Can you imagine this speech of hers? And now, Deep Thoughts by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I mean, it's true. It's like, we need to take a look at factory farming, you know? Period. It's wild. It's not like to say we're going to force everybody to go vegan or anything crazy like that. But it's to say, listen, maybe you shouldn't be eating a hamburger for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Like, let's keep it real. That was... Time's up. Get off the stage, woman. By the way, we took her actual words, the transcript of her words to do that. We took the actual transcript of her. We we did not, we didn't add any additional ums or likes, but we didn't subtract them either. That is, those are her actual words that she spoke. Hopefully when she goes off script, uh, she'll do a better job. Oh, come on. One, one, one more just because. And now, Deep Thoughts by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. We set a goal to get to net zero rather than zero emissions in 10 years because we weren't sure that we'll be able to fully get rid of farting cows and airplanes that fast. That was Deep Thoughts (laughs) by Alexandria (laughs) Ocasio-Cortez. I just, I'm sorry. I, I couldn't help myself. I, I, I got a friend. His name is Wade. Uh, he will otherwise remain anonymous, but but he, he his name is Wade. And he believes that the greatest horror on planet Earth is clown farts. He, he, he believes it is a blight on humanity. Farting clowns. He, he's got to think. Y'all, if you knew him, you would understand. Wade rides an electric scooter. And he's concerned about clown farts. But if you listen to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, you know the real issue with planet Earth right now are cow farts. It's the cows, not the clowns that are farting, that is the problem. And something's got to be done, according to her and the left right now. they got to round up the cows. And see, if you would stop eating hamburgers, they would stop breeding cows. And if you stop breeding cows, there would soon be no cows. And so you would get rid of the farting cows releasing methane into the atmosphere. And then you could get on to dealing with the clown farts uh, that that Wade is so passionate about. And that may turn him vegan when he thinks about it. Uh, Y'all, the the whole thing is this, this, the left-wing idea on here. Like, for example, how many of you have been told now for years that the less processed food you eat, the better. How many of you have been told to shop the perimeter of the grocery store? Don't go to the interior where the processed foods are. You got to shop the exterior. So you got the bakery, like I'm going to use my Publix now. You go in and you turn to the right. You've got the bakery where you can get fresh breads. 
and then you've got the deli meat, and then you've got all the glorious produce. And then you continue walking down, headed headed down towards the left of the store, and you have the seafood, and then you have the meat. Then you've got the refrigerated meats, and then you've got the cream and the dairy, and then you've got the eggs, and you've got the cheeses. And, and the, the, the nutritionists out there and, and the, the left would tell you that's what you need to do. Don't go to the interior. Don't 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 go down the baking aisle. Don't go down the the canned vegetable aisle. Don't go for God's sakes. Don't go down the frozen food aisle. No 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 no. You got to just do the perimeter. Get get your bakery goods. Get your vegetables. Get your meat. Get your dairy. Get your eggs and cheeses and go home. All that stuff in the middle it's it's processed. And the more processed food you eat, the worse it is for you. And now they want you to eat the vegetarian impossible or beyond burger with the synthetic hemoglobin that has a blood feel to it. Y'all, if you haven't tried these, they have a meatier feel than your standard black bean vegetarian burger, but it's still not quite a hamburger. And you can tell, and you can do a blind test between the Impossible or the Beyond Burger and a a standard hamburger uh, from Burger King or wherever you want to get it or or from your backyard, and you can tell it's, it's not really the same. But on top of that, you know it's actually worse for the environment. And I, I realize there are a bunch of people out there who want to tell you that it's actually, it's it's good, it's fine, it's no big deal, you should eat it because it, you're, you're getting rid of cows, and if you're getting rid of cows, you're getting rid of the cow farts. But the reality is that in so doing, you are eating highly processed food that everyone has been telling you for a decade is actually worse for you. And maybe this gets to the suicide pact of environmentalism that the less people there are, the better it is. But the whole thing is very bizarre that they want to go in that direction uh, with this sort of stuff. I, I listen. I, I I'm I just I will address this to an audience of one. My friend Wade, you you solve the clown fart problem, then we can all deal with your your or the, the cow fart problem. We can deal with your clown fart problem, but we got to deal with the cows first. And Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, she wants to ban them. She wants to reduce them. My preference is just eat them. I don't know if y'all know this or not, but cows are very tasty. They are very, very tasty animals. So too are the pigs and the chickens. I'm just, I, I'm, I'm just throwing that out there for you. I'm, I'm just throwing that out there. Now, we have other stuff. Speaking of tasty cows and pigs, and chickens, the restaurant industry. We, I, I a moment of seriousness here, if you'll allow. The restaurant industry in America is actually being very hard hit. And no one, the the government had a plan to help bail out local restaurants. And it doesn't look like it's going to go anywhere. Democrats actually want to use it as a campaign issue. So they don't want to actually solve the problem right now. And that's kind of unfortunate. I get, I get really frustrated in in my household and I don't mean to be, but I, I get off air. I, I, here at noon and then have to figure out typically lunch and then go back on air from four to six. And then oftentimes we're, we're, we're tired. Nobody wants to cook. I got picky eaters and go to the, go to find something from a restaurant. And, and I finally, I I lost my temper about it a while back and, and we do a better job of, of trying to cook last night. I, I smoked a Turkey 
uh, and and I, I smoke chicken, and you know we'll, we'll do burgers. I I love to grill. I, I've got a great smoker. I've got a Rectech smoker. I've got my big green egg. I've got my fancy grill. Uh, and, and I made fresh bread the other day, sourdough and and the like. But right now, I don't really feel guilty about going and eating at local restaurants because local restaurants are seriously on hard times right now. Seriously on hard times. And the more you can eat at your local restaurants, the better off uh, your local economy is going to be. And I realize not everyone can because a lot of you are on hard times as well. Uh, But there is a serious financial issue for restaurants, and a lot of them are starting to close. Tim Keller, one of the most famous chefs in North America, is closing his restaurant in New York City. In fact, uh, New York City is losing more individual and chain restaurants than any other part of the country. At the same time, the media is out there shaming everyone for daring to go out and and be out. And we do know there actually is data out there that uh, bars and restaurants are where people are spreading the virus. So let me me read you some of this from the New York Times. In Louisiana, roughly a quarter of the state's 2,360 cases since March that were outside of places like nursing homes and prisons stemmed from bars and restaurants, according to state data. In Maryland, 12% of new cases last month were traced to restaurants. In Colorado, 9% have been traced to bars and restaurants. It is unclear what percentage of workers transmitted the virus among themselves or to patrons or whether customers brought the virus. But the clusters are worrisome to health officials because many restaurants and bar employees across the country are in their 20s and can carry the virus home and possibly seed household transmission, which has soared in recent weeks through the Sun Belt in the West. Since last June, scores of popular restaurants throughout the country, including in Nashville, Los Angeles, Las Vegas, Atlanta, and Milwaukee, had to close temporarily because of cases among employees. Texas and Florida also had to close bars this summer after a surge of new cases hobbled those states. In recent weeks in San Diego, 15 of 39 new cases in community settings stemmed from restaurants. And in Washington, D.C., cases have begun to sneak up since the city reopened in-room dining. In New York and many other places, in-room dining, which had proved far too dangerous than uh, outdoor eating, remains banned. Epidemiologists roundly agree that indoor dining, especially in bars, is far more likely to spawn outbreaks than outdoor settings. In Spokane, Washington, 24 customers and an employee, most of them between the ages of 19 and 29, all tested positive for the virus. Their cases were linked to a taco restaurant, even though health department officials indicated the restaurant was practicing all the recommended prevention methods. Okay. I, 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 I want to say something that, that may surprise some of you, given my firm position on the virus. We're not talking about a large number of cases. In Louisiana, it's a quarter of cases outside of prisons and nursing homes, but we're talking about 2,360 total. In Maryland, it's 12%. In Colorado, it's 9%. We're not getting rid of the virus. The virus is not going away. We shut down. We did what they wanted us to do to flatten the curve. And and what did the graph show? What did the graph show? The graph showed if we flattened the curve, we weren't going to get rid of the virus, but hospitals would be able to accommodate the surge. And that's what happened. Why are we in revisionist times now where we forget the whole idea of flattening the curve was not to eradicate the virus, but to flatten it to the extent that hospitals would be able to gear up and handle the surge? 
the virus isn't going away. If the virus isn't going away, we got to come to terms with how to handle it. And one of the ways that we need to be able to handle it is if your restaurant can do outdoor seating, go do outdoor seating. If not, spread people out and take all the precautions you can. But we are killing off small business in this country. We are wiping out small businesses. And chief among them, we are wiping out local restaurants and bars that serve communities, have a purpose in their community. They build community within their community, and we are killing them. And I don't think that's healthy for our communities or sustainable. We're increasing unemployment, and we are increasing uh, vacant buildings. We are harming uh, we're harming the tax base of communities. There are ways for us to navigate through the virus. We're not going to stop the virus. People do need to accept responsibility, and there are still going to be cases. The whole purpose of flattening the curb was to get us to a point where hospitals could gear up their capacity and take care of this. It seems like we've done this. It's really remarkable that what we saw in, in the early days were those graphs that showed a huge spike and then a decline if you didn't flatten the curve. And if you did flatten the curve, it was a slow and gradual decline that spread out over time. And we saw in New York City what happened if you didn't flatten the curve. And we're seeing everywhere else the um, it, what happened when you flatten the curve. We're seeing those graphs and suddenly the media is freaking out. When we did exactly what the experts said and we flattened the curve, we did flatten the curve. Hospitals did gear up. Remember the, the doom scenarios in Georgia. You know what you're hearing about in Georgia right now? I told you weeks ago this was going to happen. The virus would begin to decline and suddenly everyone would hype the number of deaths. The deaths are a lagging indicator. The deaths have always been a lagging indicator. If the virus went away today, you would still have deaths going out another couple of weeks because of the surge we had. And yet the media has turned these scenarios. It, it, it's fear porn is what it is. It's, it's scaring the mess out of people that people are dying of the virus. Well, they got the virus weeks ago. And guess what? Hospitals did not get overwhelmed. Did they get very much to capacity? Yes, they did. In some cases, they were having to move patients to other hospitals. Did the entire state healthcare system get overwhelmed? No, it did not. It did not get like Phoebe Putney in Albany. It did not get like New York City. We flattened the curve. Hospitals were able to manage it. Uh, is the virus going to go away? Not until there's a vaccine. No, it's not going to go away. Should we stay home forever? Even I, an advocate of shutting things down for a while? No, there's no business. We have no business reshutting down this place. We have no business reshutting down our economy. We need to do what we can to save the economy right now. And and the this nightmare scenario is about restaurants uh, needing to shut down again is is not only wrong. It is terrible for local communities, not just because of the aspect of it from the economic standpoint of revenue generation. It's bad because of the lack of community when you don't have community restaurants you can go to. And it's great for reporters and healthcare officials to dictate and, and pontificate on what's going on, but community matters and these restaurants matter to communities. Hello again, it is Eric Erickson here. The phone number, if you want to call in, is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I want to talk about Ed Sheehan. No, not, not I'm not talking about that singer. Um, this is a, a cool story. 78 years ago, Edward Sheehan, Teddy they called him, uh, was on a boat in the Pacific. It was the HMAS Ar Armadale. Um, it is an Australian warship during World War II. And today, 
Teddy Sheehan is going to be awarded the Victoria Cross, the British Commonwealth's highest honor for military valor. It was actually December 1st, 1942. He was a gunner's mate. And the ship came under attack during an operation uh, near the Japanese-controlled Timor. And it was across the sea uh, from the Australian city of Darwin. Uh, The Japanese were building up forces, and there was a real concern that the Japanese were going to invade northern Australia. And the, the skirmish began, and Sheehan's ship was spotted by Japanese reconnaissance planes as it left Darwin in northern Australia. And the Japanese sent warplanes to attack. Sheehan wound up getting wounded uh, as the Japanese planes strafed the ship. And the Japanese launched uh, bombs at the ship and blew it up. There were 149 sailors on the ship. 49 of them were able to jump into the water. Actually, more than that jumped into the water. And the Japanese began firing their machine guns into the water. Sheehan, witnesses saw, was about to jump overboard as the ship was sinking and he was bleeding. And he decided instead to strap himself into an anti-aircraft gun and began shooting down the Japanese planes that were trying to kill the men who had jumped overboard. And witnesses recalled that as the ship sank. He never unstrapped himself from the gun. And as he was underwater, drowning, he continued to hold the button, firing the anti-aircraft battery, turning it this way and that, just to strafe the air to keep the Japanese away so that the 49 survivors in the water could survive. It was proposed years ago that he be given the Victoria Cross, and they didn't give it to him. All right, welcome. (laughs) Sorry, I'm distracted by the press release I just got. It's Eric Erickson here. The phone number, want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Sorry, I said that fast. 877-973-7425. Uh, This hour of the program is sponsored by True Precision. Uh, Go check them out, true-precision.com. Great, great gun manufacturer. Well, I shouldn't say gun manufacturers. They make gun parts. Uh, They made the slide in the barrel for my Glock 43X, which is awesome. I updated my sights with them as well. I got to do an updated trigger with them. If you want to update your gun, if you want to give it a better look, if you want to make it more awesome, if you just want a a just amazing work of art that you can also protect your home with, protect yourself with, uses your concealed carry, go to true-precision.com. That's their website true-precision.com. You can find them on Instagram as well, but just go to their website, true-precision.com, and just look at uh, their their slides and barrels. They really do good work, and they are really, really awesome people to work with, uh, and you can buy their slides and barrels online. If you use Eric as your checkout code, E-R-I-C-K, uh, you get 10% off. It's worth it at true-precision.com. 
Uh, and uh, so tomorrow, I just a uh, housekeeping note. Let me get this out of the way here before I go further while I'm thinking about it. Uh, I got a doctor's appointment in the morning. I couldn't push it to the afternoon. It's, it's in Atlanta, so I'm not going to be here. Chris Burns uh, from Dynamic Money will be filling in for me. I, and I want to revisit uh, the story that I concluded the last hour with. Uh, now that I got all of you with me, uh, I'll do this briefly, but the time was short at the end and I did bad clock management. Uh, and this is really worth worth hearing about, even though it's not American. Uh, Teddy Sheehan uh, was a gunner's mate uh, on the uh, HMAS. Um, what was the name of his ship? Um, now I lost it and I had it in my notes. It was an Australian ship that he was on board. Uh, during the um, during World War II, and he saw the Japanese coming. Uh, Armadale, the the HMAS Armadale, his, her His Majesty's Australian ship Armadale. It came under attack December first, nineteen forty two. Uh, Teddy Sheehan uh, was eighteen years old. The ship began to sink. People started going overboard, and the Japanese started uh, firing shots into the water to kill as many of the Australian soldiers as they could and, and Australian sailors as they could. So Teddy, uh, who had been shot and was bleeding, strapped himself into an uh, anti-aircraft gun and began to fire on the Japanese even as the ship sank. And the witnesses who saw him go under said that the gun continued to fire even as he was under the water, the gun continued to fire. And as the ship continued to sink, the gun continued to fire even as the gun was under the water. Shots coming out of the water, uh, strafing the air to keep the Japanese away from the soldiers and sailors in the water so that they could be rescued. Uh, Teddy Teddy Sheehan died with a, on a, strapped himself to a sinking ship with his hands firmly pulling the triggers of an anti-aircraft battery aboard the gun to save as many people as he could. He sacrificed himself so that others might live in this war. And he is being awarded the Victoria Cross, which is the highest military honor in the British Commonwealth. Now, the point that I left out on earlier that that I I wanted to make here is that um, his case was reviewed in World War II and then in 2013 and in 2019. And the Navy in Australia determined and the Commonwealth determined uh, that his actions were not enough to warrant the nation's highest honor. Strapping himself into an anti-aircraft gun and continuing to fire shots even as he was dying, even as he was drowning, even as his lungs were filling with water, he kept his hands firmly grasped upon the triggers of that anti-aircraft battery until he was dead. And the Prime Minister of Australia has decided it was time to fix this and give him the Victoria Cross. And, and you know, one, one of the, the reasons it was determined upon the Prime Minister's review that Teddy Sheehan had not been given the Victoria Cross, he was 18. That the Victoria Cross was not awarded to young men of such low rank. And the prime minister decided uh, this man, Teddy Sheehan, an 18-year-old, is a national hero in Australia, and he is deserving of this award, regardless of his rank or youth. Now, uh, that's just, I, I, I just, I 
do often subscribe in various ways to the idea of the great men theory of history. And it is it is increasingly in this day and age more of a fringe theory in history, but it has always been remarkable to me to see those people who rise in leadership at times of crisis. Who does God put in your path at times of crisis? And here's a young man, an 18-year-old, no one probably would have ever heard of had he survived. And he did a remarkably brave act to make sure that other people lived uh, drowning. And this, again, this is the most remarkable thing is, is the witnesses are very consistent here that even as the ship was fully underwater, that shots continued to come from the ship for another minute or so, uh, until he was dead and everyone, uh, should applaud people like that. And we should remark upon how in history, great men, uh, seem to come out of crisis and, we, we are in crisis now, and it's one of my frustrations here with this COVID-19 situation, a global pandemic, and I have yet to see who the great men are rising out of this crisis, and, and hopefully we will find some. In the meantime, uh, it is up to each of us to be prepared to do those things we need to do to protect and keep our families safe and, and keep things going. I will move on from this because there's other stuff that we need to to do. One of the one of my frustrations with my own side can can we all acknowledge that both the left and the right have crazies. There are crazy people on the left and the right. And they do and say crazy things. And the media is overwhelmingly more likely to highlight the crazy people on the right and avoid highlighting the crazy people on the left. And one of the things the people on the right must do is is work harder to put our best foot forward because we're in a battle for the hearts and minds of the American public. And I believe conservative ideas are what will save the nation. Frankly, I believe a a full-throated embrace of federalism uh, will save this nation. If California wants to have gay marriage and universal health care, let them. And if Georgia wants to have um, traditional marriage and free market health care, let them. If Louisiana wants to have uh, pro-life, no abortion policies, and New York State wants to willfully kill kids as they leave the hospital, let them. Uh, well, not not to that exaggerated extent with New York City, but if New York wants to be pro-abortion on demand and Louisiana doesn't, let them. And let federalism sort it out. And, and frankly, I think ultimately what you'll find is those those pro-life states will outbreed the pro-abortion states. The states that have traditional marriage will have larger, stronger families than those that have just given up on marriage. Uh, but let, let, them, the, let the market dictate through choice and federalism. And I think that uh, we, we have that case to move forward as conservatives to live and let live uh, at the state level. But don't tax the entire nation for a socialist uh, health care policy. Let, let the states experiment and see what works best, see what, what, what works, uh, the, what, what becomes most affordable. And I just think that um, the GOP needs to do that. And we also need to be mindful of the fact that 
we got a bunch of crazies on our side who say all sorts of crazy things, and the media wants to put those people forward. It, it's one of the concerns so many Republicans have, for example, about Marjorie Taylor Greene, that they're afraid that it's not just that she'll embarrass Republicans, but she'll say things that other Republicans have to have to answer for. Uh, and, and we see this regularly out there. And one of the things we're already seeing right now that just makes me angry is we're seeing people already circulating birtherism nonsense against Kamala Harris. Uh, Kamala Harris's parents were immigrants to the United States, and there is a law professor out there today from the right in Newsweek saying, you know, she may not be eligible to be president because her parents were immigrants to this country. Now, she was born here on American soil. The question is, it, it, was she natural? Was she a natural-born American? I, I just, it infuriates me that we give platforms to this stuff. Because all it does is it allows the left to paint us as racist. And the reality is, as a practical matter, um, no court is going to entertain this. And I don't understand why the right continues to wish to chase windmills that distract us from larger issues about her record as attorney general or her record in Congress. And now everybody's got to answer for, do do you think that she's eligible to be president or not? That's what the left does. And we fall for it every freaking time. And it just drives me crazy. There are so many things that we can uh, focus on and yet everybody's got to be distracted by this. And that, that, that really does frustrate me um, at a, at a deep level that we have to revisit these issues and the fringe voices on the right get so amplified by the left willfully so, but the fringe voices, and this is the the key here, the fringe voices on the right would not be amplified to the extent they were amplified if uh, the, the, the punditry community on the right did not give them access to voice their fringe opinions. It's one thing for crazy birther at a Tea Party rally to be waving a flag claiming Barack Obama is a closet secret Muslim terrorist organization of one. It's another thing when you allow them access to a publication, uh, a mainstream publication like Newsweek to print uh, their view that Kamala Harris may not actually be eligible for the presidency because her parents were immigrants to the country. Frankly, I think it's one of the cool things about this country uh, it, that uh, Mike Pence and Donald Trump and Kamala Harris, their parents were immigrants to this country. And they are now the president, the vice president, and the vice presidential nominee of the other party. And we should all applaud that in this country, Anyone can come here and have access to the American dream. Now, if you're not a natural-born American, you weren't born in this country, you immigrated from another country, you can't become president of the United States. You can be a senator, you can be a congressman, but you can't be president. That's in the Constitution. You've got to be an American citizen at birth. If you're born, it is commonly accepted by pretty much everyone except this one wackadoo guy in Newsweek that if you are born on American soil, you, you are a citizen of the United States. It has been this way since the 1800s, whether you like it or not. If you don't like it, amend the Constitution. But if you're born here and your parents are immigrants to this country, you can be the president. You could be the leader of the free world. And that makes us awesome because we're about the only country on the planet where something like that could happen. And that makes this country an amazing country 
That's why this country is not a blood and soil country. It is a country premised on an idea that all men are created equal. They are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And if you believe these things and you want to come here and follow our systems of immigration to get here, you should be welcome here and we should welcome you with open arms into our system. And unfortunately on the left these days, we have too many people who want to preclude that altogether and, and say, no, you the American dream is bad. You should come here and keep your own culture. Do you know there are actually increasing voices on the left that think it is bad for us to learn foreign languages because it is cultural appropriation. If you learn Spanish, you are culturally appropriating the left. It has the left has been overtaken with some sort of mental illness. We should be applauding the assimilation of immigrants into this country uh, through through lawful means, and that a, an immigrant from Jamaica and India can uh, join together in marriage and give birth to a child in this country who can grow up to be the nominee for the Democratic Party for vice president and challenge uh, a son of immigrants uh, from Ireland who is vice president of the United States. Well, we should applaud that as a country because that sets us apart uniquely from other countries uh, that something like that can happen. And that just makes us, again, we should not be afraid to say, yes, America, we're awesome, way better than all you other countries. Hello there, it is Eric Erickson here. Um, I, so there is actually, there's some news out there that is happening right now. The president has just released a statement. This is actually a very big deal uh, to me. President Trump, Prime Minister Netanyahu, and Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed, Crown Prince of Abu Dhabi and Deputy Supreme Commander of the United Arab Emirates, uh, spoke today and agreed to the full normalization of relations between Israel and the United Arab Emirates. This historic diplomatic breakthrough will advance peace in the Middle East region and is a testament to the bold diplomacy and vision of the three leaders and the courage of the United Arab Emirates and Israel to chart a new path that will unlock the great potential in the region. All three countries face many common challenges and will mutually benefit from today's historic achievement. Delegations from Israel and the United Arab Emirates will meet in the coming weeks to sign bilateral agreements regarding investment, tourism, direct flight, security, telecommunications, technology, energy, healthcare, culture, the environment, the establishment of reciprocal embassies, and other areas of mutual benefit. Opening direct ties between two of the Middle East's most dynamic societies and advanced economies will transform the region by spurring economic growth, enhancing technological innovation, and forging closer people-to-people relationships. This news that the United Arab Emirates and Israel will normalize relations and build embassies and create travel actually makes me kind of emotional. I grew up in the United Arab Emirates in the 80s, and I remember our textbooks Anything about Israel was redacted or torn out. The Israeli flag, when you flip to the back of your geography textbook and there were flags, uh, the Israeli flag was blacked out. I'll never forget when I was in ninth grade, we took a class trip to Athens. Yeah, we we, we traveled internationally uh, in school. And our senior class trip was ninth grade. And we went to Athens and Mr. Von Spreken, our our a teacher, he pointed up to a group of flags in the Agora in, in Athens, the, the marketplace, and there were all these world flags, and there was this one flag that was white and had blue stripes and a blue star in the middle, and he asked us if anybody knew what it was, and none of us did. None of us had ever seen that flag. 
Well, that, that was Israel's flag. It had been redacted in our textbooks. We, it was something we weren't allowed to see. Uh, the maps in our books had labels that said Palestine placed over the word Israel if they weren't blacked out altogether. And maps were scribbled out. Um, and, and that was in the United Members. That was in Dubai in the 1980s. And now the United Arab Emirates and Israel are going to work together and they're going to establish diplomatic relations and they're going to build embassies and they're going to have air travel between them. You know, if we as as kids growing up in the 80s in Dubai wanted to go to the Middle East or wanted to go to Israel, you had to actually have a, a special page in your passport that could be inserted and removed uh, so that you could get back into the United Arab Emirates. You weren't allowed in the UAE if you had Israel in your passport. And now you'll be able to go. This, this is remarkable. It's, it's remarkable. Uh, brought to you by President Trump and Pres- uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu and, and uh, Sheikh Mohammed. Uh, bin Zaid al Nahyan. This is a big deal. And unfortunately, I believe we live in such partisan times here in this country. I, I don't know that uh, the media will treat it with the, the credit it should do. Y'all, I grew up in, in Dubai. This is unheard of at that time where literally you weren't allowed to learn about the, 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 what was the, the six day war or whatever. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I, I've, the Golan Heights uh, were, were firmly on the map, Syria, and Israel didn't exist. It was either labeled Palestine or, or it was blacked out. And that's all going to change. And, and I, that has changed over time, I, I'm led to believe. But that's the way it was in the 1980s. So, so this is a, a historic moment uh, that I, I think deserves some time to, to let breathe. Um, Israel and the United Arab Emirates, according to the statement from the president, will join with the United States to launch a strategic agenda for the Middle East to expand diplomatic trade and security cooperation along with the U.S., Israel, and UAE. Uh, They share a similar outlook regarding threats and opportunities in the region. This is a bad day for Iran, folks. Bad day for Iran. The U.S. is is building up a collaborative relationship uh, between Saudi Arabia, the UAE, uh, Israel, and and other uh, Sunni Arab nations to uh, recognize the growing threat from Iran. And it's actually good for the region. It's good for the stability of the region. It's good for the trade of the region. It's good for peace in the region. Uh, So good for President Trump making this happen. He deserves some credit here. So does Netanyahu and and so does the uh, Crown Prince of Abu Dhabi. All all of them doing this. It's, It's a landmark day. Big deal. And it deserves some credit here. You know, unfortunately, I think that the media has become so polluted when it comes to the president that they just can't bring themselves to recognize what a big deal something like this is. And they don't want to give credit. But uh, this really does deserve a whole lot of credit out there, folks. It it really, really does. Uh, And good for the president for doing it. Uh, When we come back, I don't intend to get you outraged, but I just might with the story that I got to cover when we come back. It is Eric Erickson here across the nation. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. If you want to call in, remember, you can find me all over the internet at EW Erickson, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube. Instagram is where you really want to go, though. It's where I'm the least political other than Philip puts up clips of this program. (laughs) Do you guys remember Kermit Gosnell? Kermit Gosnell. Kermit Gosnell was an abortionist. Uh, He was a serial killer. 
Uh, Kermit Gosnell uh, allowed women to do such things as deliver uh, babies, induce their labor, and let them deliver babies into toilets. He, he actually did that. Kermit Gosnell uh, is just horrific crimes uh, as an abortionist, and the national media refused to cover Kermit Gosnell. In fact, uh, Molly Hemingway, who now writes at The Federalist, I believe it was Molly Hemingway, she reached out to the Washington Post to find out why the Washington Post would not cover the story. Philadelphia is, is kind of within the, the sphere of influence for even a Washington paper. The Washington paper, the Washington Post, wouldn't cover it because, in their words, it was a local crime story. Shortly thereafter, when Wendy Davis in Texas decided to stand up and, and wear her pink running shoes, abortion Barbie, to filibuster uh, a Texas abortion law where she failed, uh, the media, including the Washington Post, heralded her as a national hero for a, a local legislative maneuver in a state that cannot get the Washington Post in print. Uh, Kermit Gosnell, an abortionist who was in the backyard of the Washington Post, was a local crime story, not worth covering as he induced women to give labor into toilets and then uh, essentially drowned their children. And uh, Wendy Davis standing up on the floor of the Texas legislature in a procedure that failed uh, was a national hero to the Washington Post. It's amazing how selective the media can be in telling certain stories. And I've got to imagine that that selectivity comes to this story. And it is a tragic, tragic story that deserves national exposure. And I suspect if the races were reversed, would get national exposure. A man in North Carolina shot and killed his five-year-old neighbor in front of the five-year-old's family. In Wilson, North Carolina, Darius Sessoms, 25, shot and killed Cannon Hennett while the boy was playing in his yard with his family on Sunday evening. Cannon's mother said her son was playing outside when Sessoms ran up to the boy shot him in the head, and fled. Doris Liebrand, a neighbor who witnessed the shooting, told WRAL-TV that Sessoms ran up to Cannon, put a gun to his head, and fired before running back to his house. Liebrand said she first thought Sessions was playing with the kids. But when she saw Cannon's father's reaction, she ran inside and called 911. Cannon's mother and the boy's sisters, aged seven and eight, were playing with him when the shooting happened and witnessed their little brother getting shot. He was taken to a nearby hospital where he died. No details about a possible motive for the shooting have been released, but police said the shooting wasn't random. Sesums lived next door to Cannon's father. A neighbor said the two men had dinner together Saturday night and that Sessoms was at Cannon's father's home earlier Sunday, the day of the shooting. Sessoms was caught Monday night, about 24 hours after the shooting, in the nearby town of Goldsboro. He was charged with first-degree murder and being held without bond in the Wilson County Jail. A GoFundMe page has been set up to raise money for Cannon's funeral expenses. There is undoubtedly more to the story if the family had a relationship with the next door neighbor. There undoubtedly is. But can you imagine if the races were reversed? 
the national media would be highlighting the story as another example of injustice in America. The national media wants to tell you a narrative about um, police violence in the black community when statistically, actually, it, it's not significant. Uh, they, they want to tell you all of these things, and they want to tell you a narrative. They, they don't want to paint you a full picture. They want to don't want to tell you stories that might disrupt the narrative. And, you know, there's a path forward for the narrative that exists because – we didn't used to have police body cameras and cell phones, and now we do. And and there's a whole lot more police violence and intimidation than we knew. It's not most police officers. It's not even a majority of police officers. But it sure does happen a lot more than any of us knew. And so I can give you the statistics, but then I can show you the body cameras, and I can show you the cell phones, and I can tell you that there's a real issue out there. But in the last couple of months, we've been treated to dissertations from progressive activists trying to wave away black-on-black violence, trying to uh, get you to pay no attention to what happens on the south side of Chicago, and and trying to build a narrative that, that leaves out those sorts of things. And here comes this story, and I, I can't imagine there is a single person listening to this program right now who isn't thinking what I'm thinking, that if this was a young five-year-old black boy and a white neighbor who came over and shot him in the head and killed him, this would be the lead story on the nightly news. But it doesn't fit the narrative. And interestingly enough, I, I put this out on Twitter and said, why is it this national story? And a bunch of progressives are chiming in. Only white nationalists want to raise this story. This is all you part of the white nationalist agenda. And, and that's what they have to hide behind. Justice is supposed to be blind. And righteousness and justice, they should flow like a river across this country. And it shouldn't matter whether the five-year-old is black or white. If the media would cover it because the child was black and, and the shooter was white, they should cover it when the child is white and the shooter is black. And they won't because they're not really interested in justice. The left is not really interested in justice. If the left were really interested in justice, they would not have Kamala Harris as the Democrats' uh, nominee for vice president when it is an objective fact that she kept young black men in prison to serve as cheap labor for the state of California and willfully refused to disclose to defense attorneys evidence that was exculpatory and could have gotten people out of jail. That's not in dispute. That was in the New York Times. They wrote it. They're not really interested in justice. If you're interested in justice, you don't make Kamala Harris your nominee. If you're interested in justice, you expose the stuff that disrupts your narrative. If you're interested in justice, you report on Kermit Gosnell. It's not a local crime story. It's an abortionist murdering children and abusing women. If you're interested in justice and you're willing to run the story of, of a young black boy killed by a white man, you run the story of the young white boy killed by the black man. It, 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 justice is blind. But the media seems hyper aware of race these days. And that in and of itself, I think, is racism. And, and that, I think, in and of itself is something bad. Uh, for all the media coverage in 2008 with Barack Obama, uh, the number of people who didn't want to vote for him because he was black was highlighted by the media as a sign of racism in this country. What about the people who want to vote for Kamala Harris because she's black? 
isn't that racism as well? You're judging her based on her skin color, not the, not the content of her character. You're judging her on the color of her skin. And that's what the media is doing. The media is highlighting the color of her skin. The, this is a historic moment, and you should in some way vote for her because of this historic moment that is based on the color of her skin, not based on what she stands for, not based on who she is, not based on her background. To some degree, the media incites white nationalism in this country by the media's own fixation on race in this country. It's very much like uh, Twitter and Facebook are now shutting down sites that disagree with, uh, that they disagree with. They're shutting down the Alex Jones's sites. They're shutting down the QAnon sites. And, you know, y'all know my, my I, I mean, I've done now two days in a row monologues attacking QAnon. But when you shut it down and you censor it, you actually amplify it because very much like with QAnon, people go in search of knowledge. It is it is innate in the sinfulness of man that we believe that there is a secret knowledge that can guide our paths. That's why self-help books do so well, because people go in search of that secret knowledge that can give them a leg up on everyone else. It's not enough to just trust in God and look at reality as it is. You got to go find that secret knowledge. You got to go find that Gnosticism that that opens an inner doorway of, of some inner secrets. It's why QAnon thrives. It's why so many conspiracy theories thrive out there on the on the right and the left. And when you go censoring that stuff, you embolden people to believe, aha, there really must be secret knowledge, and they don't want me to find it. And when the media drives away the the white nationalists but amplifies race on their own, people go out and they search in, in, in of ethnic Gnosticism. Why is it the media is playing up one race and not the other race? And, and the media, in fact, perpetuates racism and builds a new generation of white nationalists and racists by the way they themselves cover this stuff, that Kamala Harris is special because of her skin color. This is a historic moment, and it is, objectively so, it is. A, a, an, an immigrant whose parents are South Asian and Jamaican, her, her parents as immigrants, South Asian and Jamaican, she born natively in this country, a black woman, going to become the first female black nominee of a major party to be vice president. It is a historic moment. But when you listen to the coverage in the press, they're making it so much about her race in this historic moment and not about who she is as a person. It inspires other people to want to do the same thing. And you've got deranged people out there who who embrace race. But we yet when you have the media also doing it, it amplifies and justifies it for people on the other side wrongly. So here you have a young white boy, five years old, shot in the head by a black man, and it won't get national coverage in the media because that's not part of the narrative the media wants to tell. If we really believed in equality, we would treat this story just like the reverse story of a young black boy getting killed by a white guy. There is a double standard in the press when it comes to race issues, and that double standard amplifies and emboldens people on the other side. And the media plays with fire on this stuff. All of this goes to the larger issue of, of the national media is way more interested in telling narratives than telling facts. I, I, I sound like a broken record at this point on this, but it, it's such an important one that you need to know is that the media used to, the, the national press corps, used to focus on telling you the who, what, where, when, how, and why. Now they want to steer it and leave out certain parts of the who, what, where, when, why, and how to tell a story. 
and storytelling to the media is more important than fact-telling. Narrative is more important than truth. And when the entire National Press Corps goes in search of a narrative and a story to tell, well, there's always another story to tell. And the people who tell the other story will build their own narrative and they'll leave out the facts the media tells you and add the facts the media didn't to shape a countervailing narrative, a yin and yang. If the media actually told you the truth and treated these stories equally, you would actually have less racism, I believe, in this country. You would have less fringiness in this country. You, you would have less QAnon conspiracy theorizing in this country, but the media can't help itself. And because the media can't help itself, other people can't help themselves. That is, that is just the reality we have today. Uh, the fear mongering and the conspiracy theorizing comes from people shaping counter narratives to a media that doesn't want to tell you the truth. They want to tell you a narrative. And when they get a story like this, they can't tell you the story because it would generate national outrage that would potentially undermine the narrative they want to tell you that police are bad, racism is still a massive problem in this country, and, and, and there's all sorts of injustice derived from white supremacy in this country. Which like every other conspiracy and every other theory out there and every other narrative out there, there are kernels of truth, but on top of which they build whole houses of lies. And, you know, more and more, that that's that's my I, I, I really feel like that's my role here now is is to point out the actual truth of the things that are asserted and, and to highlight the stories that are being left out by both sides, by the way. I mean, I, I, I'm deeply frustrated with my own side these days for not shaping full stories and giving you the full truth. Nobody really wants to give you the full truth. They want to give you truthiness, not not truth. Um, but you, you know, look, uh, we got a major bank that's taken over the brave stadium that wants to call themselves truest. Um, it, it, they're not really true. They're not really true. They're, they're, they're kind of truthy, uh, truthy park up there. It, it just, the, the truth really matters. Y'all the truth really matters. The truth really matters because there really is a God in heaven. And if he's true, truth matters. If he's not true, you know, Katie, bar the door. Um, it, it, it's, it's, everybody gets to claim facts for themselves. None of us should own facts. All of us should be committed to the truth. And the truth of the matter is bad things happen in this country that transcend racial lines. And when you only want to highlight one side, you embolden another side to come festering up and try to make, make your story a lie and their story the truth when, in fact, we got stories to tell on both sides that paint a broad picture of race is a complicated topic in this country and too many people are obsessed with identity politics and that's shaping the news we hear and that's bad for this country. We should transcend and get beyond race. And there are those in the media now who believe we have to explicitly see race. And I actually think they're wrong. And I think it's bad that they do this. And they would call me a racist for saying that we should be colorblind. But no, in fact, I agree with Martin Luther King Jr. We should judge people by the content of their character, not by the color of their skin. And we should do the same thing with news stories. Do y'all know who Nancy Guthrie is? Uh, I, I like Nancy Guthrie. She, um, I, I shouldn't call her a friend. She's a good acquaintance, though. I, I interviewed her, and she's just 
delightful person, a uh, Christian author. And, you know, th- this gets back to, to the point I made at, at the end of the last segment, that the media these days no longer wants to judge people by the content of their character. The media actually does want to judge people by the color of their skin, and they want you to judge people by the color of their skin, and they want to make so much of the news about the color of people's skin as opposed to the content of their character. And uh, Nancy has this thought, and, and she's right on this, that when you get into critical theory and things like that and, and social constructs and, and gender is a social construct and, and uh, race could be a social co- construct, all, all these things are social constructs, how do you legally protect people? How do you legally protect people when they are defined by a social construct? Because your social construct may be different from someone else's social construct. Whose social construct uh, should get protection in the law? They they want something. They, if you want to be identified as a woman because you feel like a woman, how do we legislate that protection? Do we legislate based on feeling? Because that's terrible policy, and and I assure you that one day uh, the winds could shift completely. Uh, We have too many people who are involved in this idea of critical theory. And and just so you know, critical theory, it really does derive from Marxist thought. It's been prevalent on college campuses for a very long time. Tim Keller actually had a very good piece recently about uh, why critical theory of all of the various prevailing theories in this country of how to govern society, critical theory is actually the stupidest. Uh, and I, he, Keller was very, very blunt that it, it is the most nonsensical theory. Uh, you can understand the people who believe we need to govern it collectively what is good for society as a whole. And you can understand people who believe that we need to govern based on what's good for the individual and assume that what's good for all the individuals will elevate society as a whole. But to say we need to govern based on critical theory of, of you're this and that and we're going to pick and choose which of you is relevant based on how you define yourself, that's no way to govern society. And, and let me see, I, I, I let me read this because I, I, I've, I've kept this on my desk. Um, where is, um, yes, postmodern power. Uh, the justice theory uh, is the newest on the scene, though it's actually uh, has an older pedigree. Drawing from the teachings of Karl Marx, what can be called postmodern critical theory has emerged very recently with its own account of justice, which is sharply different from all the others. Because it has taken shape more recently and has come on the scene so forcefully, we should take it. Critical theory argues, first, that the explanation of all unequal outcomes in wealth, well-being, and power is never due to individual actions or to differences in cultures or to differences in human abilities, but only and strictly due to unjust social structures and systems. The only way to fix unequal outcomes for the downtrodden is through social policy, never by asking anyone to change their behavior or culture. And on and on it goes. And, and um so then he gets to uh, an analysis and he says it's deeply incoherent. If all truth claims and justice agendas are socially constructed to maintain power, then why aren't the claims and agendas of the adherents of this view subject to the same critique? Why are the postmodern justice advocates claims that this is oppression unquestionably morally right while all other moral claims are merely social constructs? And if everyone is blinded by class consciousness and social location, why aren't they? 
Intersectionality claims oppressed people see things clearly, but why would they, if social forces make us wholly what we are and control how we understand reality? Are they less formed by social forces than others? And if all people with power who call the shot socially, culturally, economically, and control public discourse inevitably use it for domination, then if any revolutionaries were able to replace the oppressors at the top of society, why would they themselves not become the people that should subsequently be rebelled against? When you think things through with the left in critical theory, it really is the logic of the insane asylum. I mean, it, it really is. And But it pollutes now even our media. They can't cover a child being killed by his next-door neighbor because the race of the child is white and the killer is black, and that is the sole purpose why this story doesn't have national attention. And you know it, and I know it, and the media knows it, but you're a racist for pointing out that they're using race to guide what shapes their coverage. It's unfortunate we've got to this place in this country, and man, if Biden gets elected, these people are just going to be emboldened to do it even more.